Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right, you guys, welcome to episode number ten. Very excited about this one. We've got Rick Cusick on the show to talk about the late, great Dr. Lester Grinspoon. We've got Chris Ball from Ball Family Farms in Los Angeles. And uh, lots of amazing grow and cultivation information for you guys. All brought to you by Sweetleaf Nutrients at sweetleaf.com. So stick around. All right, welcome back, and as always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the amazing tune. Mike, episode 10, we're in the double digits double now. Double digits, yes, very <laughs> exciting. Yes, indeed. Uh, this, is a, this is a good one, I think. Yeah, they're all good ones. Huh. Well, <laughs> sure. There hasn't been any stinkers. Eh. Yeah, you're right, they're all good. <laughs> <laughs> the Terps are, are amazing with all of these shows. So hopefully people are, you know, squeezing the terps, smelling the terps, feeling the terps. This is getting uncomfortable. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> the terps are consenting. Okay. Hey. So really good show. We're excited. Um, uh, people uh, listening last week uh, might recall that um, just before we ended up posting that episode we found out that dr lester grinspoon had passed away right and right. we weren't and able to really that. get into it on that right. show but we promised that we would get into it in this episode and so we will yes absolutely uh we are speaking with rick cusick who uh longtime high times employee uh fellow uh salt miner <laughs> with uh, you and i over at High Times, uh, but really a historian of cannabis and legalization movements and High Times and normal and people like Jack Herrer and Lester Grinspoon and all the pioneers of this uh, amazing community and industry. And so it was, it was an honor and a pleasure um, to know Dr. Lester Grinspoon, visit his home, you know, consume cannabis with, with him. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's a sad day, but also, you know, we, we celebrate someone's life when, they, when it's a life well-lived like that. You know, 92 years, um, 66 years married, tons of amazing accomplishments, and just an overall great person, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and uh, the strain uh, also is noteworthy. The, That's true. The That's Grinspoon. true. Barney's Farm, uh, affiliated with Barney's uh, Coffee Shop, Barney's Breakfast Bar in Amsterdam. Uh, their seed company uh, came out with a Dr. Grinspoon strain, which is f phenomenal. You know, a little wispy, but uh, an amazing, amazing, you know, p almost pure sativa land race that they discovered uh, and just has an amazing uplifting effect. And, you know, that's one of the ultimate honors that you get, I guess, in cannabis. And, and he obtained that. And I was able to play a role in, in getting him that strain to smoke as well. So, you know, uh, just an honor and a pleasure to know him. And uh, some great stories from Rick Cusick about him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when you want a story told, you go to Rick Cusick. 
And so that's what we did. And um, maybe we should uh, go to that right now. Yeah, absolutely. He can spin a yarn and uh, he does so. So uh, without any further ado, uh, let's chat with Rick Cusick about Dr. Lester Grinspoon. All right, we are back and uh, honored to have a special guest, the former uh, associate publisher of High Times Magazine for many years, uh, as well as other uh, jobs there at the magazine, including editor-in-chief and ad director, uh, Mr. Rick Cusick. Hey, Dan, thank you for having me again. Hey, welcome, welcome. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. Of course, it's under sad circumstances because last Mm. week uh, we lost... Uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon at the age of 92. Uh, And I just wanted to sort of introduce our listeners if they weren't aware uh, of Lester. He is the psychiatrist uh, best known for his long tenure as an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, a friend uh, of Carl Sagan's, uh, defender of John Lennon's, author of uh, Marijuana Reconsidered in 1971, and author of marijuana the forbidden medicine as well uh and our friend so thank you rick for coming on the show and talking about uh dr grinspoon i'm pleasure to be here so we we know lester personally as god's own stoner uh, uh, but he, yeah. he right yes uh but he didn't come to cannabis until later in his life and uh it's an interesting no. story about how that happened because carl sagan played a major role in that Correct? Yeah, he had, um, Marijuana Reconsidered was actually his second book. His first book, he wrote a textbook on schizophrenia and took seven years to complete. In 1967, he was waiting for his collaborators to finish up. He was done. He had a few months in his hand. And Carl Sagan was his best friend. 1967, and Carl was smoking pot every day. And so Lester said, Carl, you know, I think he's smoking too much marijuana. That can't be good for you. And in my mind, probably not in reality, but in my mind, Carl said something to the effect of, Lester, I think you should reconsider. (laughs) And uh, he was going to prove Carl wrong. He had a few weeks off waiting for his collaborators to finish their work. And so he uh, went into the Harvard Library, which let's thank God that he went into the Harvard Library. If he went into any other library, it wouldn't have had all of those source materials. It was one of the finest research libraries in the world, and he had his hands on everything. If you walked into the New York City Library, we would have been shit out of luck. But he walked into the Harvard Library, and he spent uh, four or five days there. And he realized, he said, as I spent there, and I was going to write a clinical, well-grounded paper on why marijuana could possibly damage your health. And what I had discovered was I had been brainwashed. And that all of the information was there to prove otherwise, but that it had buried. And so I decided right then and there, first, to apologize to Carl, and second, to write a piece for Scientific American. And the first marijuana reconsidered uh, it was in the December 1969 issue of Scientific American. And it was uh, a big deal at the time. It said on Scientific American, marijuana reconsidered. And uh, Harvard came calling, Harvard Press, and said, would you like to turn it into a book? He put it out in the end of May 1971. It was uh, reviewed on the front page of the New York Times uh, book review, and they said it was the best dope on marijuana. 
<laughs> and so that winds up on Nixon's desk where he uh, actually writes in the margins yeah. uh, something about how lefty uh, let me, Lester let me, was and then, and then mentions it on the tapes uh, when he says, uh, what is it with the Jews? They all, yeah, well, they all want to legalize marijuana. Is it because they're all psychiatrists? Yeah, they're all psychiatrists. What's wrong <laughs> with the Jews, Bob? What's wrong with the Jews? It's I guess it's they're all it's incredible. Um, so he was also involved in uh, the deportation hearings of John Lennon because once again, Nixon uh, got a bug up his ass about John Lennon and was trying to figure out a way to keep him, you know, to deport him back to, to, to the UK. And he had a, uh, a marijuana charge uh, from back when they were busting all the, all the London yeah, yeah. <laughs> rock bands. It was yeah. like one cop that had, you know, had it out for the rock yeah, band. One cop, busted, busted all Rolling, those Yeah, busted the Stones, busted uh, uh, John Lennon. Uh, and it was actually a chunk of hash uh, that he was busted with. And Lester testified, you know, uh, that, I guess that hash and marijuana are, are, are not the same thing. Right. In, and in they the way that the, yeah. the hell out of them and they, they let John stay in the country. <laughs> right. Right. And he stayed in the country. Uh, um, that must've been in, you know, the early seventies. Um, well, yeah, it was uh, 1971, 72. 71. So, no, it was after marijuana reconsidered came out. Uh, so yeah, 73. That's right. It was 1973. Cause he, uh, the funny thing about Lester is, he was the number one marijuana expert in the world as soon as that book came out. He's the only Harvard professor writing about weed. And, uh, and so he didn't, he was very wanting to try it, very much wanted to try it. But he didn't smoke because he knew he was going to be called to testify. And that people were going to ask him if he got high and he wanted to say the, the strongest thing he could. So he testified for John Lennon for so many others. He was the world's leading authority on marijuana and never got high. Now you remember in the beginning, you said we're talking about God's own stoner, God's own stoner before he was God's own stoner was the world's leading expert on marijuana who had never smoked marijuana. Right. And, and, you know, partly I think, you know, his, his oldest son, Danny um, passing away from cancer and using medical marijuana at that time also had a major effect on uh, his understanding that not only was was marijuana wrongly uh, pilloried, but it was also uh, could be a healing uh, plant and could help yeah. in the pharmacopoeia. So you know, reversing not just you know the stigma of marijuana use as being harmful, but actually it's the exact opposite. It's actually helpful. Um, and also, uh, you know, I remember his son, David, uh, who's also, uh, you know, astrophysicist uh, and friend um, saying that, you know, like trying to say like, hey, dad, you should, you know, try some pot and loosen up and listen to the Beatles. And instead of, you know, he had his head in the Baroque is what uh, David said. He had, Lester had his head in the Baroque, you know, he listened to classical music and uh, he got high and listened to the Beatles and finally kind of clicked for him, you know. I think there was some Napoleon ice cream involved. <laughs> that oh, tasted, yeah. There was a lot of things involved tasted, that night. <laughs> right, tasted better than he ever had. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, obviously, you know, he, he wrote Marijuana Reconsidered and uh, also, you know, The Forbidden Medicine. But he also talked a lot about just the enhancement effects of yeah. cannabis. So it's medical, but also enhancing, enhancing music, enhancing... Uh, ice cream, enhancing lovemaking, 
which he would say all those things. And I think that com- coming from a... I think it all came down that same night, to be honest with you. All those, all those realizations, <laughs> one after the other, came down. <laughs> and he, he managed to uh, consume cannabis in some interesting places. I think you have a story that's never been publicly told. Never been told, yeah. Never yeah. been told. He told me the story. He it can only story. now be told. Yeah, now it would be told. You know, um, uh, Carl Sagan was his dear friend. He was the best man at Carl Sagan's wedding. And uh, when Carl hit, that was before Carl hit. I mean, he was best friends with him. He was just another, you know, grad professor of, uh, at Harvard. And uh, by 1980, 81, Carl was in the cosmos, you know, and very, very famous. Suddenly. And um, and he, Carl got an offer to go to Russia in 1982. Now, Put this in context. This is when Reagan was calling the Soviet Union an evil empire, and it was the height of the Cold War since the 1950. And uh, Carl was invited to come for the 25th anniversary of Sputnik, uh, which uh, they had beaten in 1958. They had beaten, so it has to be 1983, something like that. And uh, uh, so he said, "I'll do it, but can I bring my friends, the Grinspoons?" He said, well, sure, you can bring whatever you want. So, so it, was a big, it was a big propaganda ploy to get him to come to Russia for the Russian government. And he didn't care because he was against the government anyway. So they went and uh, uh, they rolled out the red carpet, so to speak, for them. And uh, they, uh, it was during the, the celebration for Sputnik and they had the classic Russian military parade, you know, with the tanks and the, and the, the uh, armaments and the missiles and such on parade and the, the goose step and the whole bit. And uh, they had put the Sagans and the Grinspoons in the best hotel in Moscow, high above Red Square. And they had this 20 foot huge balcony that, that wrapped around the corner of the hotel and it was theirs in their room. So they were out on the balcony and they were watching the procession of military go through Red Square beneath them. And when that was over, it was evening and they were shooting fireworks. And he described to me the fireworks that were going off and behind, whenever they would go off, you would see the onion-shaped buildings of Moscow suddenly light up and go away. It was an incredible moment. So he turns to Carl, Carl turns to him and he says, Lester, isn't this phenomenal? And he said, yes, it is. He goes, but you know what would make it more phenomenal? He said, what's that? Lester reached in his pocket he picked out a pack of cigarettes, which he clearly did not smoke. And he went like that. He actually smuggled two joints into Russia. And <laughs> while the Red Army was below going through and the fireworks were going up over the onion skin buildings, Carl and Lester uh, got high at that moment. Uh, Lester has the best where I got high story I've ever heard in my life. He smoked <laughs> pot during the middle of the evil empire and <laughs> on top of, you know, above Russia. Above the Kremlin. Yeah. Yeah, that's intense. I believe, okay, let's let's tell some stories out of school now for a second. (laughs) I I believe you were the one who took the seeds back from Amsterdam with the Grinspoon, right? Uh, I arranged for them to make make their way back in one way or another. Uh, And our friends friends, uh, grew them out. They, Uh, our friends grew them out. And uh, and they gave me an ounce pot. Mm-hmm. And I went up to Les. I went up and I went up to Les used to get high on a volcano in his bedroom, and we went up in his bedroom and I smoked Grinspoon with Grinspoon. Talk about cool places to get high. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, yeah, that was a Danko Cusick operation. <laughs> it's an amazing strain too. It's very unique, uh, very, very much a sativa, very enhancing, uh, strange in the way that it grows, uh, ornery a little bit like the man himself sometimes could be. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, you know, if there's a Mount Rushmore of, of cannabis built, you know, Jack Herrer, uh, Lester Grinspoon is, the, is, you know, is, is on that mountain. Uh, well, this, and... is, this is a lunch conversation that the High Times staff used to have. As you'll remember, <laughs> when the conversation came up, who would the real five be? If you're going to put five people, because there's only four, you have to put five. And who would the five be? And I, I think, and it's arguable, of course it's arguable, but if you're talking about influence, the first one has to be Lester Grinspoon, because before Lester wrote Marijuana Reconsidered, we were all stoners. And after he wrote Marijuana Reconsidered, we were citizens and we were patients and, and who, who had rights. And uh, so he was the most influential. And Keith Strop took that book and ran with it with Normal. And he would definitely be number two on the list. I always put Bob, Bob Randall, who started marijuana, medical marijuana in the 1970s. Nobody really remembers Bob, but his influence is powerful and, and continued. And, uh, I would also put Tom Fursad, who founded High Times Magazine, because clearly if High Times wasn't there to show people for 40 years what Bud looked like, they probably wouldn't have thought about it at all. And uh, the fifth one, naturally, is Jack Herr, who is the soul of our industry. Yeah, I just, I love the idea that, um, <laughs> that stoners make a, a five-person Mount Rushmore. <laughs> That's really great. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like top five in hip hop. You know, you got your top. Right. Five. It's, it's like you've heard of a baker's dozen. Well, yeah, it's like yeah. Famously a four-person thing, but but That's fuck right. that. It's going to be five because I'd love to get you know Dennis Perone in, on there and Dr. Todd McCarea on yeah. there and Brownie Mary, of course. It's like a fifteen-person. Yeah. Number. Now, now you're really you're carving up a mountain. Now, you, now you're getting. Once you get past <laughs> the eighties and nineties, you're in the right. second phase. Indeed. Mostly. Well. Uh, I'd like to obviously send our condolences uh, to uh, his family, Betsy, uh, David, Peter, uh, everyone who loved him and he loved, uh, you know, he, again, you know, the, the world has lost an amazing man. He lived an amazing life and it's a life well lived, uh, well lived. To, the, to the age of 92. We can all only hope uh, to leave that kind of uh, legacy for family and, and, and for community and making the world a better place for the people closest to him and millions and millions of strangers that he never met, <laughs> that he still, that he never met. That he still improved the world for. Do you have any sort of final words you'd like to say? Lester was an atheist, a hardcore atheist. And uh, he didn't believe he was going anywhere when he goes. But he said, if I had a second life, not that I was going to have a second life, <laughs> but if I had a second life, I've thought about what must be there for me to be happy. And first, there must be Betsy, because she's the love of my life. And second, there must be my children, because they've given me so much joy. And third is the kind of work I do, because it gives me so much satisfaction. And marijuana. Marijuana would have to be there. Hmm. Ah, amazing. All right. Well, Rick, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And uh, Hopefully we can have you back sometime soon. Uh, the Drug Test News is your oh, site. Thank you. Yeah. Right? I'm, still, I'm still plugging away trying to make drug testing easy for stoners. And what's the website? 
www.thedrugtestnews.com. There you go. And there's great stories on there. Uh, great essays by Rick. And uh, if you need to pass a drug test, great ways to do it as well. Uh, so go check that out. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. All right. Amazing recollections of the great late, great Dr. Lester Grinspoon from Rick Cusick. Um, so yeah. wait, I, I don't feel like we we heard everything we need to hear about that uh, that strain story. So you were you were smuggling these uh, seeds in your underpants, basically. Is that what happened? Uh, you know, I'm not going to get into the finer details, oh, <laughs> but I was able to arrange uh, for some of those seeds to make their way stateside and ultimately get grown out and make their way into uh, the great, the good doctor's hands. Uh, and yeah, he and Rick uh, were able to consume some of that. And I think, you know, that that's a kind of one of those full, full circle moments where you get to help out one of your heroes and friends. And, and you know, that's one of those things I, I really cherish and am so happy that I was able to meet him and get to know him. And he met my family and, you know, I was able to express to him, you know, how important his uh, research and his books and, and everything that he's done for cannabis was. And, you know, like Rick said, he came to it at, uh, late in his life, ultimately really um, left a tremendous legacy, an amazing family, you know, uh, legends never die. You know, when you create something like that, when you're a good person and you do great things, um, that reverberates and resonates throughout eternity. And that's, you know, that's real. Uh, that's a real legacy a real legacy and, and true immortality, really. I mm -hmm. mean, I'm not a religious person, but I do think that when you've done great things, you know, those things uh, reverberate. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to clarify for our listeners, because Rick mentioned a couple of times that um, that the doctor was not a smoker, but that was just early or in his life. Uh, he became quite um, a fan of cannabis. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no. Once, once he, once he started, he, he was a, a lifelong consumer, uh, loved to vaporize really was a big fan of the volcano, uh, vaporizer. Um, I think, you know, the, and the later that it got into his life, I think the more and more he turned to the vaporizer as an alternative to, you know, uh, combustion and, and smoking joints and things like that. So, uh, yeah, you know, God's own stoner and an amazing Harvard professor who really did change the world so that was great we're glad to have had rick on the show um and up next we have a really fascinating interview with uh with chris ball yeah absolutely ball family farms in los angeles uh very interesting story he's well poised to uh really you know create something good and new and fresh in cannabis in california and beyond yeah very cool guy and we're we're very excited to have had him on so um, yeah, we'll be back with Chris Ball from Ball Family Farms. All right. Certainly want to thank our sponsors for the show this week. Uh, Sweet Leaf Nutrients. That's S-U-I-T-E Leaf, L-E-A-F dot com. Uh, amazing nutrient brand. Uh, you can get the sampler kit and try out the newts for, I think, 69 bucks. Also, you can use code DANKO15, 
D-A-N-K-O-1-5, for 15% off of anything on the site. That includes uh, the sweet leaf nutrients, uh, LED lighting systems, uh, grow tents. You could be growing today for like under $400. The tent, the lights, everything you need. Um, even bags that are like scent proof bags are over there. Uh, we love the, the team over there at sweet leaf, uh, lifelong friends and fam that have created an amazing product. So, uh, check them out at sweetleaf.com and remember to use promo code Danko 15 for 15% off everything on the site. Uh, shout out to sweet leaf. All right, and we are back and uh, privileged to be talking to Chris Ball of, of uh, Ball Family Farms. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't we start just by telling people a little bit about, uh, you know, your early experiences with cannabis? I, you know, I will say that, you know, Ball Family Farms, uh, you're operating a 100,000 square foot facility uh, to cultivate cannabis in Los Angeles, California. Um, so, but before we get to, to that, why don't you tell me a little bit about your earlier, early, early life experiences with, uh, cannabis and, and, you know, where that led you to. Uh, sure. Um, so I'm a, you know, I'm an inner city kid, uh, born in South central Los Angeles. Um, and I think I had probably my first experience, uh, with cannabis when I was probably about, I want to say about 10, um, my stepdad, my, my, my stepdad smoked weed um, at, when I was a child um, and every night, you know, after we ate dinner, uh, you know, he'd, he'd pull out his little weed tray, you know, from underneath the couch. And, you know, back then, you know, I, I didn't know what he was doing, but I, I knew his cigarettes smelled funny and he would sit on, he would use his little tray and he'd pick out these seeds um, out of his, out of his, his cannabis, out of his weed and separate them. And then he'd roll up his joints and he'd smoke them. And my mom would sit next to him and have her glass of wine. And, you know, that's how they, they relaxed, you know, after, after a night at the dinner table. So, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, I grew up in the Reagan era where there was the just say no, you know, campaign and this whole war on drugs. So it was a little bit confusing for me, you know, as a kid, cause I'd go to school and I'd see all these signs that said, just say no, but then I'd go home and, you know, my dad was smoking, you know, the weird cigarettes. Um, so that was probably my first, you know, uh, interaction, you know, with it, with cannabis, with the plant. Um, and as I got older, you know, we'd have family barbecues and stuff like that. And my whole family, you know, were, were cannabis smokers. Grandma, auntie, uncle, dad, you know, my mom didn't, but seems like everyone else did. So it just became, you know, a part of the cult, a part of culture and a part of way of life uh, as I saw it. Um, and then when I got into, I would say, uh, junior high, um, it became a little bit more apparent about, you know, the uses and the, the money aspect of it. My cousin Earl, um, who I give all the credit in the world to uh, for starting me out actually in the cannabis business, um, he used to sell weed when we were in, you know, junior college, at a, I mean, junior high at a very young age. And so I idolized him, you know, because he always had all the money, you know, he had the clean, fresh Jordans all the time. You know, he had the nice white T-shirts, the expensive jeans. And so I idolized my cousin for that. And he was the one who actually gave me my first ounce of weed. You know, when I got into high school, when I turned when I got into 10th grade, he gave me my first ounce of weed to sell and kind of taught me how to break it down and to kind of move it myself. 
obviously I fucked it up. You know, I was no good at it, you know, at that time. But um, that's where the that's where the journey begin. You know, what I mean, at, at an early age. Right. And um, so you were more uh, from the so kind of the distribution uh, side of things uh, and not much of a smoker at that time. Right. No, nah, ne- you know, you were more I, of an athlete. I was an athlete. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up playing sports, you know, um, from the time I was eight. So even when I got to high school and I got my first ounce and I started, you know, kind of selling it a little bit. My boys would smoke, but I never did. I tried it one time, you know, in the 11th grade and got super paranoid. We were at lunchtime. I remember this shit like it was yesterday. We went off campus for lunch, you know, and we got high at a park. And I came back to fifth period and everything started to change. You know, the, 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 my teachers started to change. The way people's voices started to change. My heart started beating a million miles per hour. Couldn't taste anything, you know. So I was like, oh, shit. I knew I wasn't supposed to smoke. I'm about to die. Went to the nurse's office, called my mom, told her to come get me. I told the nurse, the nurse was like, what's wrong with you? She, I, told, I told her straight up, yo, I was smoking hot weed at lunchtime and I think I'm going to die. You need to call my mom. So my mom, my mom takes off work, brings my ass home, puts me on the couch, puts me to sleep. And her and my dad like cracked up laughing at me, you know, but um, I never smoked. You know, it, it, after that experience, it just wasn't for me. But, you know, I was definitely fascinated, you know, with the money aspect of it um, at that age. And at that time, it was purely, you know, a money thing for me. Right. And as those type of uh, distribution cycles go, you know, if they're successful, uh, they get bigger and bigger. And it seems to me that yours uh, must have followed along that same track of getting larger uh, and larger and and. Uh, and eventually getting onto the radar of the police. Correct. Or the feds, actually. Correct. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about that. We won't say too much, uh, you know, for statute of limitation purposes. But uh, um, after I, let's see, after I, you know, I put myself through junior college um, by selling weed. I went to Mount Sac uh, Junior College and I, put, I was actually able to put myself through junior college, you know, feed myself, put gas in my car, you know, once I moved out of the house after high school. And started playing football at Mount Sac. And then I got my football scholarship to go to Berkeley. So, you know, at that point, I didn't need it anymore. You know, I had got my scholarship. I was on a full ride. I was playing sports. Um, my life completely turned into, you know, straight into sports. Although there was cannabis around because I was up in the Bay Area, you know, which is one of the hubs and meccas of, of, of cannabis. Um, I never touched it. I, I never really had no reason to. And then once I got out of uh, college, you know, I played some pro ball for a while and I landed myself over in Canada in Vancouver uh, playing in the CFL for the BC Lions. And this is where the cultivation bug, you know, um, really hit me and where I kind of started to learn about, you know, cannabis from a growing aspect. But, you know, still at that point, I didn't really know, you know, how to grow. So I was still distributing, you know, and in Canada, prices were a hell of a lot cheaper than they were in California. So I got, you know, me and my partners and, you know, some names that we don't need to talk about. You know, we set up a distribution, um, uh, a logistics situation and a distribution hub from Canada uh, to, to, to Los Angeles. And this is where I made a really big name for myself because I was able to get, you know, really good product from over there for really cheap. And I was able to undercut the market in Los Angeles. So I became a very, very popular guy when it came came to, to moving cannabis in the black market. And I made a name for myself. So at that point, you know, I attracted, you know, I touched somebody else in the space and we were trafficking a lot, a lot of cannabis all over everywhere. And uh, it attracted the attention of, of the feds. And I was indicted in 2010. And actually ended up doing some time, right? 
Yeah, I, um, I actually did about a month. I, I went in when they when they swooped up everybody. I went in for about a month and, um, you know, bailed out after a month and uh, found out that I was, you know, uh, being charged with uh, I was looking at a 10 year mandatory minimum on my case. It was the RICO Act. Found out I was working for a very, very uh, famous um, cartel um, that I had no idea I was even involved in. Um, and I went and signed a, a, a 30 month deal. I pled out, you know, pled out of the case. I just kind of admitted, you know, what I did. I didn't want any problems. They didn't really want any problems with me out of a 14 man indictment. I was number 14. I wasn't the target. I was kind of at the end. They knew we know your life. You're the only African-American guy on this case. Everyone else is Latino. We, we got 14,000 pages of phone taps. We know who you are. We know your involvement. So um, I pled out, I signed um, a 30 month uh, deal and, um, but I had a really good lawyer and the lawyer uh, restructured my case to where I didn't have to report for sentencing until the case was finished. The number one through five on the case were still fighting the case. And so I didn't have to report and do my 30 months until that was done. Well, it turns out they fought the case for four years, you know? So when I finally went back to court after it was all said and done, I hadn't gotten any trouble. I had maintained the job, you know, for those four years. The judge, you know, looked at me. I turned in like a thousand hours of community service over the course of four years. So the judge looked at me and told me, gave me time served and I was free to go. Wow. Uh, And now that also allowed you to be part of the social equity program uh, in Los Angeles. Um, Explain a little bit about that, like how that works. Yeah. So, you know, during that time, um, I kind of kept my nose clean, but I was itching to get back into the space, you know. Um, I was a traditional guy, you know, all of my friends from L.A. obviously owned all these dispensaries, all these um, pre-ICO dispensaries. So once I came back um, and after I, you know, got my case and stuff out of the way, a partner of mine told me, hey, man, you know, there's a the L.A. is allowing uh, L.A. has just adopted this social equity initiative where they allow guys with with uh, drug convictions to get a license. And I was like, you're joking me. I was like, there's no way they're going to give a guy with a felony with my record a legal license to to grow and, and, and sell marijuana. It just doesn't make any sense. He said, no, bro, I'm serious. You need to go down to City Hall and check it out. So I went down there and sure enough, man, I, I sat in on a, a, a City Hall uh, session and found out that the social equity um, situation was real. Um, I got introduced. I quickly got introduced to a group called the CMA, um, a guy by the name of Virgil Grant and Donnie Anderson. And those guys kind of, you know, led me along the way of um, of the social equity situation. So um, I wind up filling out an application, um, got myself a little, you know, compliance team together, filled out an application and got granted the license. Amazing. And uh, what does it mean to have a, a vertically integrated uh, type of situation? Out so there? what that means is that I'm um, I own I have a, a cultivation license, a manufacturing license and a distribution license. So being vertically integrated means I own every aspect of my supply chain. So it's not like. I'm just a cultivator. Then I have to go out and hire a distributor and pay that distributor a percentage to distribute my product to the retailer. I don't have to go out and, and, you know, take my raw biomass and give it to a manufacturer and have them manufacture and do a split with them. I own all aspects of that. So we do our own distribution. We actually partnered with another um, distribution company called Greenstone. Um, shout out to those guys. They're doing a great job for us. And I've known Ryan, the CEO, for a while. So I do allow uh, they do do my up north. Um, distribution. And then we at Ball Family Farms distribution handle the Southern California aspect of it. And then we have our own manufacturing, a type six manufacturing license so that we can, you know, do our own oils, edibles, you know, packaging and stuff like that. So that's what vertically integrated means. 
And I actually just want to jump back to um, the social equity really quick and just uh, to mention how how important that really is that, you know, people who had been making a living in the black market of cannabis then and paid the price uh, because it was illegal, get a, a crack at actually doing it legitimately. And that's sort of what happened with you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to kind of talk, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I like to kind of speak on that a little bit. You know, the social equity program, although it's working for me, um, I'm kind of like the unicorn. You know, I don't know too many social equity applicants that are having success with this program. And I think it's just because, you know, the city and the state really hasn't figured out, you know, how to implement this thing correctly and give the proper resources that need to be given to the to the social e- equity applicants. You know, I used I like to use the uh, the metaphor or analogy that when I got my football scholarship to Berkeley, um, it was great that they, you know, I was able to get into the school and they admitted me to the school and gave me a football scholarship. But had they done that and not provide housing for me, not provided, you know, financials, you know, for my books, not provided financials for a tutor, not, you know, not giving me the resources to be successful, then it wouldn't have mattered that they gave me that scholarship. And that's the parallel of what's happening, you know, in Los Angeles with the social equity program. You know, they granted these licenses, but they didn't offer these applicants any kind of resources, no governmental aid, you know, no, no, no consulting, you know, from from people who understand this business and and who's been there. So for me, because of my education from starting out in the cannabis industry when I was 16, from having to go to jail and, and making my mistakes, having to learn in the street, you know, how to, to, to move this plant and, and what, the, what it means to the culture to have good weed, bad weed, outdoor weed, indoor weed, light that weed, you know, hydroponic weed, soil weed, uh, Rockwell, you know, grown weed. Um, all those things play a part in, in, in your success in the business. And it's, a, it's been a, a, a 20 year education for me, which is why now that I have the license, I'm able to be successful because I understand the culture. I understand, you know, what the public wants when it comes to this. So the social equity program is lacking that here in Los Angeles, you know, instead of bringing in all these VC people and all these, you know, um, guys from, you know, the, the medical industry or the scientists or these botanists, that ain't what it's about. The, the, you don't need those guys. The hippies, you know, the hippies up in the, up in the mountains were growing really great cannabis or have been growing it for the past 50 years. You don't got to be a rocket scientist to know how to do this. And I think, you know, those those big firms and those big companies, they missed the ball on that. You know, what I mean, they missed the mark. You need a guy like me to come in and teach you, OK, I need to consult with you and show you how to do this, where to put these dollars, where to put this money so you can be successful and, and learn how to and learn how to reach the culture when it comes to cannabis. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the cultivation stuff. Uh, what were some of the challenges in scaling up to 100,000 square feet? I mean, uh, it seems like it's pretty hard to get, you know, up into that kind of range uh, and still be producing quality products. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. I'll tell you what. So we have um, 100,000 square feet right now. We're only operating in about 20,000. Um, our next phase is, is the second 20,000, which will start as soon as the city and everybody gets back to work. We've already submitted our plans and permits and stuff like that. But I can just tell you at 20,000 and running 300 lights right now from opposed to running 14 lights in my first grow, it's night and day. Right. <laughs> I mean, running a 14 light grow when I first got it took the, took the effort of two people. Now I have about 20 working in there. Um, so cultivate, you know, cultivating op- Cultivation obviously is not an easy thing. You know, everyone kind of thinks that you just, you know, stick some plants into some into some some rockwell cubes or some dirt 
and they just grow. It does not happen that way. Um, if you guys are familiar with cultivation, you know this, right? So um, we started out, you know, very, very small. We started out in the 20,000 square feet. There's eight rooms of 30 lights each, which equals a total of 240 uh, bloom lights and 60 veg lights. We started out with two rooms. You know, we started out with 60 lights going and we w gradually worked ourselves up. You know, we were able to harvest, throw some money out into the market, bring some of that money back in and then reinvest into the next room and keep going and, 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 and uh, vice versa. You know what I mean? So um, it definitely has has been a challenge just with um, the city, the permits, you know, being a black market guy, it was very easy to put up a grow before before there was licenses, before licenses were needed. Right. You could cut corners in all different areas from from conduit for your for your electrical to the the size of your hallways. You know, what I mean, in your little garage grow or your little you know commercial grow. Now it's it's totally different. There's so many things that you have to think about, you know, um, bathrooms, uh, you know, handicap signs exit signs you know 28 fire hazards 28 inches between your between your table so that if there's a fire people can get out you know there's just so many other things that that go into it from a legal standpoint it's been a it's been it's definitely not been easy but it's been very educational and i'm i'm, I'm really happy that i've had to go through it yeah i mean yeah it's true compliance is not something uh the traditional marketplace is, is used to and, and over-regulation and over-taxing and they're just making it very difficult. Uh, but you are jumping through those hoops uh, and that's awesome. And let's talk a little bit about strains too because uh, one thing I noticed, you guys have some very unique uh, you know, flavor profiles and strain profiles. You do a lot of pheno hunting, yes. uh, which obviously a lot of other places just you know either grow out from seeds or clones that they acquire. Uh, what is pheno hunting and why is it important to you? So pheno hunting um, for us is basically, you know, setting ourselves apart, you know, and if anybody's listening or watching and you really don't know what pheno hunting means, it just means that we, you know, we take, we get our cuttings from seed, right? So we grab seeds first and then we plant those seeds and we grow those seeds out. And once those seeds grow out, we choose the plants with the best expressions, right? So whether it's gonna be, you know, the sight, the smell, the, the, the THC, you know, the color, all those things, we kind of look for the best expression of the plant. And then we, 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 we select, you know, let's say out of 100 seeds we pop, we get 20 that have great expression that we like. Now we take those 20, we make, you know, clones off of those 20 and we run them again just for a second round, just to make sure, you know, that we like those expressions. And then we narrow it down again. You know what I mean? So that's really what pheno hunting is um, in layman's terms. Um, why it's important to us is that, again, you know, me and my partner, um, Ashton uh, Hallworth, uh, my genetics, my genetics, genetics master, we, you know, we come from this space. And so I take this all the way back to when I was, you know, hustling weed on the street. Right. It was always the person who had the most fire weed that sold out the fastest and made the most money. Right. So it came, you know, wanting to have fire weed came from that at first. It was a money thing. But now as we've got as I've gotten older and I've gotten more mature in the space and I've started to understand what cannabis means to people. It's just all about for us. It's all about the consumer. Right. It's all about the customer and the culture of the business. Um, it's like when you go to, you know, I don't know if you guys drink or whatever, but let's take a tequila, for instance. Right. There's a difference between 1942 tequila and there's a difference between, uh, between Patron. Right. And if you're a tequila drinker, you know the difference. As soon as you pour that shot or take that drink, you know the difference in the two. 
you know so it's the same thing with the cannabis consumer right the cannabis consumer knows as soon as they light their jade their blunt their bowl whatever whatever it is they know if this is outdoor weed they know if this is indoor weed they know if this is quality or if it's shit right you can't fool the consumer you know so for us we just kind of wanted to be you know my goal was to always have the best and be the best coming from a sports background i'm a huge competitor and so when i got into the game of, of cultivating you know um naturally i wanted to be the best cultivator naturally i wanted to have the best strains naturally i wanted to have the best cuts and what we found is that in sharing genetics you know most people they cut and they sell clones well you're just kind of passing around in an in, in hiv needle if you ask me so many so many of the genetics are watered down they're sick the plants have fusarium they have all kind of plant diseases running through them and so they're just kind of sharing all of those plant diseases throughout the community and out and throughout the industry and that's something that we didn't want to do we wanted to grow our own genetics we wanted to have things that nobody had we wanted to have plant expressions no one had we wanted to have flavor profiles that nobody had so we spent five years you know well actually ashton's been pheno hunting for the past 15 years you know he's had stuff locked away in vaults you know for the past 15 years so for us we knew that if we did that and we and we had the patience to do that that it would set us apart from all the rest of the companies and that we could give our customers and our followers and our fans and our consumers something special something that we knew you couldn't get anywhere else that you knew was going to be clean that you knew we were going to pick out the best expressions and that you were going to enjoy and it was going to help whatever ailment you may have had even if it was just for recreational purposes amazing um now ball family farms is a family business you brought in uh members of your family uh, yes. to bring, kind of bring it all full circle to the, your family being your introduction to cannabis, to you bringing them into, you know, the legal cannabis business. Uh, and yeah, why, why don't we mention, uh, and yeah. also, you know, about, you know, I know that, you know, you guys also strive for, you know, equal pay, um, diversity and inclusion of women, you know, in the business as well. And I think it's important uh, that people really need to get on board with this uh, and, and, you know, just diversify our culture and community. It really is atrocious that there are so many, basically all white companies out there just, Correct. you know, Correct. or all male, you know? So yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, a couple of things, man, that you talked about that I would love, love to hit on there. Um, first off, uh, ball family farms being a family business, um, <clears throat> I started this thing, you know, like I've been growing weed, I've been selling weed and messing around with weed for a long time. And, you know, my entire family has known that. Obviously, I got in some trouble with it. Um, but I have a little brother, uh, my brother Charles, who's the CFO of my company. And, um, you know, as, a, as an older brother, you always want your little brothers to look up to you, right? You always kind of, they always kind of follow, want them to follow in your footsteps and you're doing the right things. Um, and in cannabis, it kind of wasn't that, you know, because it, Although I always, you know, once I got good at it, I had money and I was kind of, you know, I had some success. It still wasn't legal and my little brother is kind of like a straight edge guy. So after all of my, after my case and all of the trouble had, had went away and I was able to get the, uh, the social equity license, he was the first person that I thought of because my, my little brother is one of the smartest people that I know. So I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to do this, you know, the right way, it, uh, who else would I trust or who else could I get better than him to come in and have my back and take care of the finances of the company and kind of steer me in the right direction because that's that wasn't my strong suit you know i'm i'm the grower i'm the relationship guy i'm the guy with all the relationships but i needed someone to help me out on the admin side so i i asked my little brother to quit his job and come work with me you know and for him 
it was, he was kind of hesitant at first because he knows the history of his big brother, right? Well, wait a minute. I just had to get your ass out of jail a couple years ago for weed. Now you ask me to quit my job. You know, I'm, I'm about to have a son. You asked me to quit my job to come work with you in legal weed. Like, I don't know. Um, so after a few a few days of begging and pleading, you know, I got him to convince to come and work with me. So I got him. Then I went and grabbed uh, my little cousin, um, who's also an ex-football player as well, but just a really, he's just a workhorse, you know, not so much on the admin side, but I knew I needed to bring myself out of the facility if I was going to get out here and really start, you know, pushing the brand, being a voice of social equity. I couldn't be stuck in the grow rooms, you know, you know, eight hours a day, right? I had to pull myself out. So I asked my little cousin to come in and be the, and be the um, facilities manager. Um, after that, you know, we needed... I had those guys, right? So that's how Ball Family Farms was created. Um, and then I needed somebody for compliance. So I was like, okay, who can I get, you know, to help me with compliance and help me with these MEPs and, the, and, and these permits and licensing because I don't know shit about that, right? So um, I wind up stumbling across a woman by the name of Ebony Anderson um, who was referred to me by one of my old contractors who used to build my, my illegal grows for me. And, I, you know, I'm hey, man, I need to pull a pull some permits, you know, to, for this building. Can you help me? He said, I got just a girl for you. Just so happened she turned out to be African-American as well. So that's kind of where Ball Family Farms, that's where the nucleus kind of came together. And then from there, you know, being a minority myself and always, you know, never really knowing another black grower ever. I had never met one, you know, before I started doing it. Um, Diversity and inclusion was always something that was really, really important to me. It's almost like I kind of wanted to prove also to the cannabis community, hey, black guys can grow too. You know, hey, black guys can, cannot, we're not just distributors. We're not just the guys to take the product and sell it and put it in rap videos and make it cool and do all that shit. We can actually have a green thumb as well. You know what I mean? So um, that's kind of where it, it, it birthed. And then from there, it just kind of morphed into that, you know, from, my, from a lot of my brothers, um, direction and advice about certain things a lot of ebony's advice and direction on certain things it just became more and more apparent and something that we felt we wanted to do to bring in you know other uh, more women you know i got about uh, for my company there's about five women that kind of run everything and tell me what to do you know <laughs> and what i've and i've noticed i'm having a lot of success because I have these women yeah. behind me or in my corner telling me, go this way, go that way. Don't do that. Make sure you say that. Don't say this. Do this. Right. right. So for me, it's been um, it's been a very, very eye opening um, experience and a very, very great experience. My partner, Ashton Haworth, you know, he's not black. He's Caucasian, you know, and he and I have come together kind of like Imagine Johnson and Larry Bird, you know, what I mean, on this thing. So, you know, and if you look at our staff, you know, if you see our staff, there's, you know, Latino, there's white, there's black, there's Asian, there's women, you know. So it's been really fun to um, to incorporate those things. But they kind of happen just by accident, just by trying to sort out the right people. It wasn't like I said, I want to go look for this or I want to go look for that. It just so kind of happened that way. And then once it all happened, it came together. We kind of took a step back and said, holy shit. We're really diverse here. This is great. Let's let's build more on this. Let's make sure we're building more on this. Let's make sure we get more women in, in, in power positions. Let's make sure we get more women in the grow rooms. Let's make sure, you know, we get more, you know, Asian people, white people, freaking whatever. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I know Ball Family Farms is, you know, I know we speak a lot about being a, a black owned company. Right. But we are not black run. 
we are black owned because I own 100% of it, but we are not black one. We are, diversity is running our company. Mm -hmm. Now, how can people find out more about the strains, uh, the company, um, social media, where they can find uh, your products? Sure. So you can uh, find us on Instagram at, uh, at Ball Family Farms. Um, we also have our website is up and live. It's www.ballfamilyfarms.com. There is a, um, all of our strain um, reviews and profiles are on our website. So you can kind of go on our website and click, you know, Daniel LaRusso. You can click, you know, Miyagi-Do and kind of read about the strain profiles. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris Ball, uh, Ball Family Farms. Uh, very illuminating talk with you. Uh, keep on growing. Really, uh, you know, love what you're doing out there in Los Angeles. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dad. Thank you guys for having me, man. And let's keep this culture going. Man, I, I, I could see it, man. You're, you're going to be a star. I'm telling you, you're, <laughs> you're going to be like the face of the new cannabis industry. I'm telling yeah, you, it's like, you. you're thank incredible. You. Yeah, so, and you got the, the great story and great outlook. And so, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys, man. I thank you guys for taking the time just to hear my story, man. I really appreciate it. All right, we are back, and thank you so much uh, to Chris Ball from uh, Ball Family Farms uh, for the interview, and I think this must be the cultivation segment. It is, and yeah, that was a really good interview. It was really cool to, to speak with him. Yeah, an Interesting history, and uh, you know, I, there's a little bit more to that story about um, the people he kind of got involved with when he got um, busted. But didn't seem like he wanted to really get into it, so we'll leave it at that. But really interesting guy, and um, you know, happy to have him on the show. Yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So um, today, you know, in the grow section here, right? Because like... it's not a strain of the fortnight, right? So you're just going to give us a grow topic, right? right. All right, it's what only do you been got? a week. It's only been a week. Yeah. <laughs> hold your horses <laughs> so yeah the topic uh i'd like to talk about is safety security and odor control um you know obviously 20 years ago this was a much bigger factor uh and now you know it's not quite but who knows you know there's people all over the world that are listening to this uh and the laws are different everywhere so it's very valid and very important and uh you know above all your freedom and health uh are your most important priorities, right? So you want to be free and you want to be healthy and you certainly don't want to grow in a location that you feel is compromised. Um, you want to understand electrical usage, um, which is part of safety, uh, and place an emphasis on, um, you know, suppressing those telltale scents that can get out of your grow, especially uh, as, it, as it gets closer and closer to harvest time and, during harvest time. So the first part of safety is, is knowing about electricity. Uh, electricity can be dangerous if you're overdoing it on, you know, amps and watts and things like that. Uh, that can be a real problem. Uh, and so any grower, even, you know, in a, you know, with a thousand watt light or a 600 watt light needs to understand, you know, first of all, that when the ballast clicks on, it's, it's, it's powering on at a higher uh, rate than uh, it's ultimately going to be in when when it's uh, just in use. So it kind of surges as it pops on. So you want to, you know, use uh, proper wiring. You don't want to like rig the wiring yourself and not really know what you're doing. 
Um, you want to have everything grounded uh, and understand the risks and limitations, right? Because you don't want to overburden your cir circuit breakers. Uh, you need to do research on that relationship and understand, um, you know, electrical power, uh, which is measured in watts, current, uh, which is measured in amps, and voltage, which is measured in volts. Uh, and plan your setup so that you're never, never even getting close to exceeding those things. Uh, and it's as simple as not putting two 1,000 watt lights on one 15 amp circuit, right? Because uh, ultimately, that's a problem. You need to spread, you know, spread that electricity around and never, ever exceed the recommended amount of current uh, for your electrical equipment. It's just absolutely Im super important. You know, this can cause... Um, you know, at the least of, of issues, you know, a power outage, you know, or an amp uh, fuse, you know, to break or whatever. But uh, in the worst case scenario, a fire can erupt and, you know, that's the, the thing you want the least. Uh, so, you know, it's important to understand electricity. If you need to do some research, do some research. If you need to hire an expert, hire an expert. Um, air filtration, also very important. Uh, the air that's removed from your grow space has to go through an activated activated charcoal filtration system. It's absolutely necessary. And I don't care where you live in the woods or wherever you, you just, you don't want that smell getting out into the public uh, and indicating that, you know, you have lots and lots of cannabis growing in your, in your home. So, um, you know, the first thing is always run through charcoal filtration, change the charcoal every six months, um, use a fan that's properly rated, you know, to clean that air. Um, there's other products that mask odors, uh, you know, but they mask it. Nothing is the same as filtration. You have to clean the air of that odor. Um, you want a vent fan with the cubic feet per minute, uh, which is a CFM rating that will remove and replace all of the air in your room, depend depending on the size, within five minutes. Um, and you want to have that go through the charcoal filter um, and like I said, replace that charcoal as necessary because it does get spent. And you want to suppress noise and vibration. Uh, another very important thing, uh, lighting system ballasts, uh, fans, pumps, if you're using hydroponics, all of these things create a lot of noise, especially if you're living in an apartment building where there's people on top of you, below you, wherever it might be. Um, you know, always keep those ballasts because they do tend to heat up and get warm. Keep those outside of your grow space um, to decrease built up heat. Um, fans and pumps can be secured on rubber pads. This is really important sometimes. Uh, between the wood and metal surfaces, you can put rubber pads and that will really silence that noise a lot, the vibrations that you get. Um, and you can buy silencers to dampen noise of fans. Uh, basically something that you put around a fan that keeps it from being quite as loud as it is without the dampening. Um, every bend that you have in your ducting uh, and tubing uh, creates noise and decreases efficiency. So this is another important thing. You know, the least amount of bends in your tubing that as you're using to go in and out and everything, the better. So try to keep those as, you know, tubing as straight as you possibly can and avoid multiple bends. Um, that will disturb the flow of the fans and it'll create more noise and that's the last thing you want. So, uh, and one last note on safety, uh, you really 
depending on where you live, you probably should not order seeds directly to the location you plan to grow in. Uh, have those seeds delivered to a different location. Simple as that. Um, this way, if the seeds are intercepted or if there's some kind of a whatever, you know, uh, some, you know, if it raises any kind of the, the awareness of authorities, it's not, they're not going to come straight to your grow house uh, or your grow space. And that's important. So, uh, you know, keep, stay safe, maintain security and control odors. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, cannabis is becoming more, you know, accepted and legal in certain places, but you can never be too safe when it comes to growing your own. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. And we have listeners all over the place. All over. I mean, yeah. Our reach is so wide and global. Uh, it's pretty amazing when I look at the stats and I see people listening uh, in places where the laws are very different. Um, and even states where the laws are very different. I mean, we're in a strange time when the laws are, are so wide ranging. You can become a, a millionaire in one state and you can go to life, you know, go to prison for 25 to life in, in one state over. <laughs> That's wild. And it's the same with countries. I mean, there's still countries that will execute you for cannabis use. So avoid those countries. Oh, yeah. If you can. Definitely avoid those countries and those states as much as you can. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I was going through our little stats uh, the other day, and we actually have a considerable uh, listenership in my old hometown of Union City, California. So if you're listening in Union City, hi. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. I love seeing all the different countries. Um, so if you're out there, you know, in New Zealand or, or wherever you might be, you know, contact us on the Patreon page or through social media. Just, just say what's up. It's, it's, I see, I see you as a number, you know, on a chart, but I don't, I, you know, I'd love to hear from you and, and hear what you love about the show and what you think, you know, we might be able to do different. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, speaking but no hate of, mail. Yeah. Don't, don't just send no haters. hateful mail. Um, normally, at this point uh, on the show, we would do our uh, Q&A. Uh, but this week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to play a game. We're going to do a little fill in the blank. But we will, of course, return to uh, answering our listener questions next week. So, as always, please do send your questions or comments uh, to us. You could reach us by email. It's info at growbudyourself.com. But what do you say right now? we do a little fill in the blank. Perfect. Love this game. All right. If you're unfamiliar with the game, um, I'm going to read a statement and leave uh, a portion of it blank. Dan is going to fill in that blank and then explain his thoughts on the subject. So to start, the pinching and pruning method should only take place during blank. Uh, that would be the vegetative stage of growth. Um, that's the time when you can build up different branches and, and, and create more, uh, tops basically. Uh, and there's different ways to, that you can do this. Um, a lot of them outlined in my book, but pinching, pruning, training, uh, screen of green system where you have a trellis of chicken wire or some type of, you know, wiring or rope that goes, um, horizontally, you know, at the canopy level and you train the plant basically just to go into those different, uh, holes in that in, in that spread um, but like I said the important thing is you just need to do this in the vegetative stage once you once your plants are you, you're getting close to the flowering stage you don't want to do it anymore because uh, it's going to cost you yield in the end if you you know start pinching off flowering sites so what you want to do is create as many flowering sites at the top 
of your canopy as possible uh, and avoid doing anything after the flowering you know stage has begun all right sounds good uh let's move on to this next one i like this um okay if a ladybug encounters a spider mite on a cannabis plant it will blank it will rip its head off and suck out all the juices (laughs) it's amazing to see uh up close it's awesome because most people think of ladybugs as these cute little uh you know cartoony bugs but they're like these ferocious monsters uh that if you're the size of a spider mite and you see one of these coming at you um you know it's like a science fiction film and you know it's going to kill you and your family uh with no remorse you know i mean they're just voracious appetites and it can be quite satisfying i've mentioned this before but you know you when you've been plagued by spider mites and then you see them in fear for once in their lives uh of this monster uh ladybug lady beetle some people call them uh it's it's heartening it makes you feel good uh when they when they rip the head off and they suck the juices out and then they you know they keep feasting until they're full and hopefully they stick around and feast some more yeah scare the hell out of any other spider mites that might want to come and uh, infest your crop all right let's move on to this next one blank is the process of leaching out excess elements by flooding the root zone with plain water. Okay, that is flushing. Uh, Very important towards the end of uh, the flowering cycle that you at least take a week or two, you know, preferably to just use some plain water uh, and leach out some of those excess nutrients and salts. If you've been lightly feeding the whole time, it's it's less necessary. Uh, But certainly if you've been feeding heavily or or even you know medium kind of feeding it is a good thing to do your your cannabis will burn cleaner um to a nice white ash and it won't have that quality of charcoal that makes it kind of hard to burn and you know you have to keep relighting it over and over um and just in general i think it's not really good for your health uh to have those salts and you know built up nutrients in that um flower you know it's you build it up with newts and and then you sort of try to leach as much of that out as you can before you want to consume that consume the plant so that's the important thing there all right very important to properly flush uh okay our next one if you have a ph of lower than five or higher than eight you are blank you are in the danger zone okay because it doesn't matter whether it's hydroponics uh, or soil or soilless mix or whatever it might be um, when the phs are that low or that high the plant is unable to take up nutrients so the roots basically just stop pulling in nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and different nutrients at different levels too um, so you really want to stay as close to you know 6.5 6.2 if you're in uh, you know a soilless mix and you know 5.5 to 6.0 if you're in hydroponics for the most part Uh, and different plants obviously will show you that they like their ph in in certain places as well but the key is you really don't want to get outside of those zones so always have a ph meter on hand Um, ph is a measure of acidity and alkalinity Uh, but more importantly if it's your you know if your medium or your solution is too acidic or too alkalinic uh, alkalitic 
your plants will not be able to absorb nutrients and basically you'll misdiagnose that as a deficiency keep giving the plant nutrients and make for a toxic environment and possibly kill the plants so that's why it's important to keep that you know ph within proper parameters yes avoid the danger zone very important um okay let's move on to our last uh, fill in the blank it is trimming your flowers before drying is blank i think it's uh not desirable i i do prefer to leave those leaves on um you can buck the fan leaves off the big sugar you know the big uh big fan leaves but leave the rest of the you know leaves on what happens is the plant will dry a little slower uh which is beneficial in most cases obviously uh but either way um and especially if you're growing for your own purposes some of those sugar leaves that are there will kind of protect the flower as it dries and then you know even in the jar and you know when it comes time to roll that up or pack it into a bowl you can always take those leaves off um if it's for personal use i mean let the let the leaves protect the bud until the you know the, the last minute where you need to break it up this is why you know i'm not a huge fan of pre-rolls is because what happens is once you grind flowers up you know they immediately begin to dry uh, and so if a pre-roll has been sitting on a shelf for two months, it's going to taste awful, you know what I mean, compared to what it would have been like when it was freshly ground. And I think freshly grinding cannabis versus cannabis that's been ground up and sitting around for a while is, you know, it, 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 it's impossible to even compare the two things because, you know, one lacks flavor and burns funny and just is like you know, a coughing, choking mess. And one is the true, you know, the true expression of what that flower should be when it's fresh. Um, You know, this is the difference between fresh produce and old produce. So if you're really a true connoisseur and you want the, the highest quality, I would say dry with the leaves on and then uh, either trim them off uh, prior to curing or if it's for personal use, you're not selling this to, to anybody, leave them on and just cure with those leaves on and they will protect that flower until the moment you break it up and smoke it and you will benefit from that protection by having uh, an amazing experience. So try it. All right, very good. That was fill in the blank. Uh, so thank you for participating in that. And uh, next week, we will return with our normal uh, Q&A section. So if you would like to get in touch with us, if you have a question, uh, you could reach us by email. It is info at growbudyourself.com. Also, on the socials, on Patreon, all of that. Uh, What do you say we take a very short break and come back and wrap it up? Sounds great. All right. What a show. Uh, I think it's time to wrap it up. Yeah, why not? Let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> this was a good one. Um, I want to thank Rick Cusick, of course, for coming on and talking about Dr. Lester Grinspoon. Uh, Chris Ball from Ball Family Farms, of course. Uh, uh, Jacques Winstrong. And thank you to Sweetleaf.com. Remember the code uh, Danko15 for 15% off all the grow equipment and nutrients there. Um, and vapor.com if you're looking for vaporizers uh, gby gets you 15 percent off of all uh, vapes and products at vapor.com um, that's the show you guys 
I hope you enjoyed oh, it. Wait, look, one second here. I just want to say that I feel like maybe it got lost in the shuffle a little bit. But last week, I just want to make sure everyone's aware of this. The Chemdog said that he would stand by whatever I chose as far as his name was concerned. That's big news. So, you know, just want to say, he said, I'll stand by what you pick, Mike. So I'm going to let everyone know exactly uh, what I'm going with there. But thank you to Chemdog I always for forget. that. Chemdog, the strain, one mm-hmm. word. Chemdog, the man, two words. Backwards. It's the other yeah, way around. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so I got my social media right because I did it. I did it. Strain, two words. Man, one word. Good job. And yeah, like forget that. about the D-A-W-G. That is not Oof. a thing. No. No, no, no. <laughs> hey, you got any recommendations? Yeah. What yeah, I do. You know what? This might sound crazy, but on Netflix, there's a show called Echo in the Canyon uh, made by Bob Dylan's son. Uh, Jacob from the Wallflowers, and it's amazing. It's a really great uh, picture of Laurel Canyon in the mid '60s, and all those bands, Buffalo Springfield and Mamas and the Papas. And he goes back, and it's a sort of documentary, but he's also doing a tribute concert with artists like uh, Regina Spector and Cat Power and Beck and uh, Nora Jones singing all those parts, and him as well. And you know, it's amazing. The stories are great. David Crosby and Neil Young and, you know, all these people talking about um, that amazing time when it was like the Beach Boys and the Beatles going back and forth and really the birth of, of you know, folk rock and, and all these amazing th- things and amazing sounds. And it's just well done, well put together. It's on Netflix. So check it out. You got any? I do, actually. Um, so fans of uh, Nirvana... Uh, they they had a song called um, About a Girl, and a band called Puddle of Mud, uh, this was like a 2000s band that I think was friends with like uh, Fred Durst or something, but Puddle of Mud did a cover of About a Girl, and you literally can't miss this. You have to go check it out right now. Like, stop whatever you're doing and listen to it. It's It sounds as if this guy is having a stroke while simultaneously shitting himself. Well, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. So. Well, wow, that's <laughs> that's amazing. I took your recommendation from last week and checked it. It was amazing. It was great. The uh, the documentary about the show, the Martin Short show, right? Oh, uh, the Dana Carvey. Right. I'm sorry, yeah, Dana Carvey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good documentary. Yeah, that was yeah. great. That was great. Um, so yeah, right on. I think yeah, if you guys uh, maybe- have recommendations. Let us know. We'd love to hear them. Yeah, absolutely. We got nothing but time on our hands. <laughs> JK. Uh, anyway, I guess it's time. So let's put this one in the books and we'll see you guys next week with episode 11.